Today we'll be reading from uh, the scripture, Matthew 26. So if you would turn to your Bibles to Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35 is where we'll start. We'll then be picking it up again at Matthew 26, 69 through 75. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a while, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You may be seated. Good morning. Let's pray together and seek the Lord's help today. Father in heaven, we thank you for the beauty of your word and for the way in which it is a discerner and thoughts of our thoughts and intents of the heart. We ask you to use this text of the fall of the Apostle Peter to awaken us to the reality of spiritual overconfidence. We... Um, We need you today, Lord, to show us ourselves. We need you to give us um, a sober spirit, give us cautionary thoughts, and then give us hope that can only be found in you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went and restored Peter as you have restored all of us in our failing and even in our denials of who you are. And thank you that at the end of the day, our faith cannot rest in our ability to endure to the end, but instead rests in your ability to keep us trusting in you. And so we ask you now to use this word um, in front of us, this text, and the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 2006 Winter Games, a 20-year-old snowboarder named Lindsay Jacob Ellis was coming down the final run of the snowboard cross. She was way ahead of the second-place person, and she could see the finish line in front of her, but there was one more jump to hit. And as Lindsay went on that last jump, the crowd was there, the finish line was in sight. She did something that she would come to later regret. She grabbed her snowboard and did some sort of flaring move, kind of playing to the crowd. A great camera shot until she landed. 
Because when she came down, her balance was lost. She landed on her heels. She tipped over, fell on her backside, hit her head. And the second place snowboarder from Switzerland named Tanya Frieden came across the finish line and won the gold. Lindsay's coach fell to the ground in disbelief. And Lindsay's overconfidence cost her the gold medal. You probably could finish this sentence. Pride comes before a fall, sometimes literally, right? And by the way, that's just not a pithy statement that your grandmother used to say or your mom used to say about you and kind of warning you when you were kind of full of yourself. The Bible has that very statement in it in the book of Proverbs. Here's what it says. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. By the way, the Bible has a lot to say about this overconfidence thing. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let therefore anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then Revelation 3. For I say, for you say rather, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What we're talking about here is the matter of spiritual overconfidence. Overconfidence in general is disappointing, but candidly, spiritual overconfidence is devastating. And this morning, what we're going to look at is the spiritual overconfidence of the Apostle Peter, really kind of the greatest of all of the disciples, and we're going to see the way in which he thought a whole lot about himself, he was full of hubris, and then he denied Christ and was full of horror. We're going to see that um, spiritual overconfidence can be incredibly devastating and then we're also going to see the beauty of what jesus does for peter and you'll also see a picture of the gospel in what he's done for you and all of this really centers around this singular thought it's this be careful about living by your assumptions and not by christ's assurances in other words what do you really trust in what do you really rely upon What do you really think of yourself? And at the end of the day, what is the real guarantee that you're going to make it all the way to the end? Or do you see Peter in this text and really see a portrait of yourself? I I hope that you do, because the reality is all of us at varying levels are are guilty of this spiritual overconfidence. So we're going to take a look at the text and then draw some conclusions at the end. The first is this. Notice that the disciples had really a limited spiritual eyesight. And the first thing you need to see about this matter of spiritual overconfidence is there's an issue of what you can't see. We've been studying the book of Matthew now for almost two years, and we're in the middle of this section. This is the third sermon in the series on the passion of Jesus. We're up now to the final days of his life. And Matthew records this story, as does the other uh, gospel writers, to show us both Peter and all of the disciples and the way in which they fell away from their relationship to Jesus momentarily. We see, first of all, that Jesus tells them that they will desert him. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. That word fall away is a really important word. It's the Greek word skandalizo. It can mean one of four things. First, it can mean to fall away in the sense that you never come to faith in the first place. You stumble at Jesus. Scandalizo means to stumble, to trip up, to fall. Um, the kind of person who never received Christ in the first place is scandalized by him. The second meaning is 
that in the parable of the soils, a shallow faith, a faith that isn't real, and then it falls away. It just gives evidence that it wasn't real in the first place. Like the, the roots that don't go down very far, the sun comes and the, the plant dies and the seed in that respect falls away. It can also be, third, an act which causes somebody else to stumble, where you could do something that caused someone else to sin or to say, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with that. That's a scandalizo. The final thing is really what's going on here, and that is a temporary denial or a temporary departure from one's faith. So in this case, some are scandalized, they fall away, they trip up, they deny, and they fall away And it's permanent, but for others, they fall away and it's temporary. And that's what's going on here with Peter and the rest of the disciples. The true test of the scandalizo, the falling away, is time. And the reason why I think it's a temporary denial is because, first, Peter and the other disciples, after the resurrection, return to Jesus. So they don't permanently walk away. They come back to Christ. Their faith falters, but it's not devastated. Secondly, Jesus himself in John 16 says that he's giving the disciples these instructions so that they would not fall, so that they wouldn't fail, so they wouldn't have a devastated faith. And the final thing is according to Luke 22, Jesus specifically prayed for Peter. In fact, Jesus was having a battle, if you will, for Peter's soul. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter. This is Luke 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat now in luke's account this is what jesus says before he says all the disciples are going to fall away and just think of what you would how how would you respond if jesus came to you and said just so you know satan i've been having a conversation about you he wants you he wants to sift you like wheat would that get your attention (laughs) i would hope that it would and it should have gotten peter's attention and then notice what, what jesus says to him but i have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. It's a beautiful thing to consider that Jesus was praying for a disciple whose faith would falter, who Satan wanted to sift like wheat, and yet Jesus prayed for him that he would be sustained. He says that you would turn again and strengthen your brothers. So what's going on here is that Jesus anticipates and predicts that under pressure of Jesus' arrests, these disciples will depart and they will deny him. In fact, it's very personal. It says that you will fall away because of me. So this is personal. These disciples who have been around Jesus will all abandon him. They will not be able to walk through the fire of um, his arrest. They will abandon him. It will not be permanent. But the problem is, in this moment, they don't see this reality of what's going to happen and that it's even possible and so what jesus is telling them here is something that they don't see secondly he then quotes zechariah thirteen seven, and he informs them that there's something going on here even beyond themselves it says for it is written i will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered He's quoting this Old Testament passage to show them that their actions will be part of God's divine plan. And once again, we see and we will continue to see throughout our study in this particular section, this this unusual antinomy between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, this tension that just exists. So the disciples will really fall away and it will really be part of God's sovereign plan for the son to be abandoned. And then third, Jesus gives them hope. And don't miss this. This is really important. 
Just after he says, you will all fall away, just after he says, this is all part of God's plan, he then says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. In other words, even before the disciples deny him, and even before they fail, guess what Jesus is doing? He's already planning for their restoration. Even before they've, they've gone through the fire, even before their faith is going to really be tested, Jesus is assuring them in advance, I'm going to go before you and we will regather in Galilee. Don't you love that Jesus pre-plans your restoration? Don't you love the fact that even though he knows your heart and he knows that you will falter and fail, that he is already preparing how he is going to restore you? So if you put this all together, the fact that, that Jesus is going to be denied, he's going to be abandoned, he's going to go before them in Galilee. You put it all together and and what's happening here is the disciples are being shown something that they cannot fully see. They have spiritual eyes, They're, they're starting to understand who Jesus is, but at the end of the day, they don't fully understand this plan, but the problem is not the fact that they don't understand the plan, the problem is they think they understand what the plan is. The problem is the difference between their understanding of reality and what the reality really is. And this is where spiritual overconfidence begins. It assumes that your reference point is infinite. It assumes that how you see others, the plan, and yourself is accurate. Spiritual overconfidence begins by thinking that we see ourselves and the spiritual issues of our own hearts and the spiritual issues of others as clearly as we think we'd like to, but the reality is we don't see them as clearly as we really should. Too often the person who says, I can't believe I did that, should have realized that the problem started with not believing what they could do. In fact, one of my favorite questions to ask in marriage counseling, or premarital counseling, rather, is do you think, this, this sweet couple really in love, do you think that you could violate your, law, your vows, commit adultery, and blow your marriage up? And if they're like, no, we'd never do that, I'd be like, you are not ready for marriage. Go back to your homes. So, be, because the reality is they don't know themselves. And you've got to know yourself when you get married because you don't know how selfish you are until you get married, Right? All married people said, amen, right? And then once you get that figured out, wow, then God sends you kids, right? Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's like body blow after body blow after body blow. God's just, you know, getting after you. One person has said, we think God gives us kids so we can raise them. He really gives us kids so he can raise us, right? That's good, isn't it? Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Write that one down. So the problem is, friends, that we don't see ourselves as clearly as we think we do. And to not have this awareness of how wicked and awful we are, that's the first setup. The the seeds of spiritual overconfidence are planted in the soil of naivete, where you think that you're something more than what you really are. And that's the problem here with Peter and for all of the disciples. Now, here's what you shouldn't say when Jesus says you're all going to fall away. Here's what happens. Verse 33. Peter in spite of hearing from Jesus, according to Luke 22, that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, in spite of knowing who Jesus really is, Peter says this in verse 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, <laughs> I, I, I really hope that there's an ability in heaven to, re, to roll the tape back and to, to like, have your own little camera angle. I, I want to see, and I don't want to see Peter's face. I want to see James, John, and Andrew when Peter says this. When he's like, 
though they all fall away because of you, I will never, I want to see these guys going, loser, you know, what what is up? I want to see their reaction. Because I can just imagine how just, how much they just were frustrated with, with Peter's bombastic statements. What this reveals is that embedded within his heart is the issue of comparison. I mean, he could have said, Lord, I will never desert you. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. He's not only overconfident of himself, he's overconfident in his ability in comparison to others. And that's another piece that goes along with spiritual overconfidence. It's not just that you think a lot of yourself, it's that you line up people who you think you're better than to convince yourself that you really are who you think you are. Spiritual overconfidence loves comparison. It's about those people, those sinners. You listen to a sermon, you're like, wow, I hope so-and-so's listening. After the service, you see someone praying up front, you're like, wow, good thing they're meeting God because they need to. In the back, you never think, what about me? The, The absence of the thought of your need is the warning sign that spiritual overconfidence is taking root. Peter's statement isn't just brash and arrogant, it's foolishly pretentious. Jesus tries to correct him, verse 34. So Peter says, though they all fall away from you, I will never fall. And then Jesus says, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So, notice what Jesus says. First, he tells them, he tells him, you will fail tonight. So it's not just that Peter says, I, will all of these deny you, I will never fall away. Jesus says, you're going to deny me tonight. And then he says, you will fail before the rooster crows. So he's giving him both a time stamp, also a, um, a, a, a symbol that when this rooster crows, this will bring back the conversation in Peter's mind. Other people also think that part of the reason why Jesus use this rooster is because he's actually comparing Peter to a rooster. He's walking around going rawr, 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 like this rooster strutting around. And if you've ever been around a rooster on a farm, right? It was in the Philippines, there were roosters everywhere and roosters just crow about things that are, they don't need to crow about. And you're just like, would you be quiet? It's no wonder they get killed, right? It's just, and, and he's comparing him to this crowing rooster saying foolish Silly, pointless, noisy things. And then he says, you will deny me three times. Not just once. Not just twice. You will deny me three times. It will be intentional and it will be repeated. So again, Peter says, though all these desert you, although all these fall away, I will never fall away. Jesus says, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, at this point, I would hope that you would say something different than what Peter says. But the problem here, friends, is that when spiritual overconfidence takes root and when it is challenged, it just revs up even more. Part of the challenge of spiritual overconfidence is that when it is challenged, it goes into overdrive. Verse 35, Peter makes an even bolder statement. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. It's crazy. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So don't miss the fact that what he is saying here is, Jesus, you are dead wrong. You're wrong. 
I'm right. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. His overconfidence causes him to believe himself, even though it runs contrary to what Jesus is telling him. At the end of the day, Peter is listening to himself. He's drowning out the voice of Jesus. This is what you did when you were a kid. When somebody was saying something to you and you didn't want to listen anymore, what's the first thing you do? You plug your ears. And if they keep talking, what do you do then? I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, right? Your your own voice drowns out the noise of others. And this is what Peter is doing by virtue of his own spiritual overconfidence. He's no longer listening to Jesus. But then the problem doesn't stop with Peter. Strange how the overconfidence of one can infect a group. Even if I must die with you, I will deny, I will not deny you. And then, and all the disciples said the same. Yeah, us too, us too, us too. They're not going to be left out. They're not going to be left out. And this is, this is painful. And yet this is often what happens. A, a father's spiritual overconfidence can infect his children. A mom's spiritual overconfidence of how really spiritual and unique and, and, and spiritually vibrant your family is, how much better than everybody else can infect your children. It can happen in an entire church. People begin to think that God's glory is just visited on one particular location or one particular program. Spiritual overconfidence begins to be a group thing when a few begin to think that they really are something and they could never, ever blow it. There's a warning here. The warning is about the possibility of being spiritually overconfident in our abilities, our aptitude, such that we convince ourselves of what we want to believe, such that we no longer hear what Jesus is saying. So that's what you shouldn't say. Then notice what you could do. We gotta fast forward over to Matthew 26 verses 69 to 75. So if you brought your Bible, turn over there. Let me just set the stage for you. We're gonna see what actually happens. Between the first text and the second text, um, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. Uh, Judas comes with a band of, um, of men from the chief priests. They arrest Jesus and then they bring him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. It's a fairly large house. There's apparently a gate that is um, surrounding it with a, a courtyard. And according to Matthew 26, 56, as Jesus said, all of the disciples left him. To Peter's credit, he came back to find Jesus. In fact, Matthew 26, 58 tells us this. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So he he got inside the courtyard. John's account, John 18, tells us that John was also there. And he told the servant girl who was kind of guarding the gate, that guy there, let him in. And so Peter gets in and he's kind of hanging around trying to pick up the gossip of what's happening, what's really going on inside the house, trying to hear news reports of what's happening, just kind of staked out to hear what is Jesus' fate. And while he's in the middle of that courtyard, his denials become very clear. It's, it's kind of a, a process. The, the first thing that happens that Jesus, is that uh, Peter pretends that He doesn't know what the servant girl is saying. Verse 69. A servant girl approaches him and says, You were also with Jesus the Galilean. So imagine Peter's hanging around a fire, got guards, got other people um, in this courtyard. It's loaded, it's tense. And she says, Aren't you one of his disciples? You were also with Jesus the Galilean. And and Peter pretends, it's classic, 
when someone's guilty and they're trying to avert an answer, he pretends like he doesn't know what she means. In front of all of those who had heard what she said, Peter says, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what you mean. I'm confused. Uh, I don't, no, no, no hablo Galilean. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. This, this is, and, and you're like, come on, Peter. Except you, you've done that before, right? Pretending like you don't know what somebody's saying. And then verse 71, he moves from pretending to a lie. The text actually tells us he moves from the location of the courtyard and he begins to move towards the gate. And while he's standing there, there's another servant girl who says the same thing. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And and Peter hears her saying this to the folks who are near that gate and can no longer pretend that he's confused. In fact, he's feeling the, the pressure of this moment. And so at this point, he lies about his association with Jesus, and he takes an oath. He he appeals to something sacred. We don't know what it was. Maybe he said this, I swear by the temple, I don't know the man. The oath was meant to convince people that what you're saying is real and of substance. And what's tragic is that Peter is a long way, a long way from, though they all fall away because of you, I will not ever fall away. He's a long ways from that. And then it gets even worse. Verse 73. The pressure gets even more significant as people beginning, begin asking Peter his connection to Jesus. A crowd begins to form and they begin to say to him, certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you. Apparently there was some sort of Galilean dialect, probably similar to an alleged uh, Michigan accent that I have. Although... <laughs> I would challenge you to to verify that in any way. And then to think through the pride of assuming that people who come to your state have an accent, that your dialect is the normal dialect. That's just strange. So you have an accent. I speak correctly. So that's that's overconfident, isn't it? I don't know. So I digress. So he says that you have a, a an accent. It betrays you. And then Peter takes his denial to another level. And what he does is this. He acts in a way that he hopes will disprove that he is a disciple. So now he not only denies Jesus, but he says things and talks in a way that should make people think that he's not a disciple by what he's doing. And so he not only here denies Jesus, but he swears, he takes an oath, he talks in a vulgar way. Perhaps he said something like, if I'm lying, may God strike me dead or send me to hell. I don't know the man. Or... Some suggest he may have said something like this. I don't know that blankety, blankety, blank man. Can you imagine? But what's going on here is vulgar, earthly, sinful words that are meant to have people go, boy, you swear like that. You're certainly not one of his followers. And that's exactly what Peter wants to have happen. When faced with fear and being associated with Jesus in crisis, he momentarily falls. Verse 74 to 75 gives us the punchline. And immediately the rooster crowed. Can you imagine this? One text tells us that Jesus actually looked at, looked at Peter. And then Jesus, and then Peter rather remembered Jesus' words before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus was right. Peter was not as sure-footed, as courageous, or as special as he thought he was. In fact, one 
commentator says this, Peter boasted that he would die before he denied Jesus, but he does not even respond truthfully to the query of a powerless little servant girl. The effect on Peter is powerful and dramatic. Look at verse 75. He went out and wept bitterly. Peter's grief was overwhelming. Can you imagine? The the, the word phrase to weep bitterly means that you have a loud expression. There's sorrow. There's lament. It's the kind of a, kind of a wail, emotion when you're feeling deep, deep grief. And here's what happens. Peter has fallen. His spiritual overconfidence has gotten the best of him. His denial is disappointing, but his spiritual overconfidence prior to the denial is what makes the story tragic. It'd be one thing if Peter fell after saying, Lord, you know what, you're right, I am so weak, and would you pray for me that I could make it? Then his fall would be bad, but not so tragic. But the fact that Peter says, though all of these desert you, I will not fall away. Even if I have to die with you, I will not fall away. And then a little servant girl comes and a little crowd comes and another servant girl. And before Peter is cursing and swearing and trying to act like somebody who he's not supposed to be. It's a sad portrait. The beautiful thing, though, is what Jesus can do. Because if you were to fast forward, remember that Jesus is planning to come to his disciples and he tells them, I will go before you in Galilee. And it's in Galilee that he gives them even the instructions about the Great Commission. John's account of what happens when Jesus and Peter meet by the Sea of Tiberias is really special. Because it's here that Jesus comes and restores Peter and pulls out of Peter his confession of love for his master. Look at this text that John says, that John gives us. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. My guess, he's grieved because he's remembering that it was three times that he had denied Christ. And here is Jesus pulling the affection of Christ out of Peter's heart. And he says, do you love me? And he said to him, and here I think finally Peter got it. Lord, you know everything. Peter learned that one the hard way. I'm hoping that maybe you could not learn that lesson the hard way. Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Friends, here is the beautiful Savior who meets people even in their denial and pulls their hearts back to him. Here's Jesus who graciously invites Peter to reaffirm his love for him and his willingness for Peter to be his follower. Even after a foolish boast, even after an awful denial, Jesus still pursues Peter and restores him. And this, friends, is an amazing picture of how the Lord Jesus works. Do you know that he pursued you way before you ever knew you were being pursued? And do you know that even in your darkest of dark moments when you've blown it royally, 
here is a Savior, if there is genuine and real repentance, who's willing to bring you back and to restore you. So the question then is this, what, what is your confidence in? I want to give you six things here that are just takeaways from this text about the gospel, Peter, and us. Here's the first one is this. Listen to me. Spiritual overconfidence is our first and greatest problem. Hell will be filled with spiritually overconfident people. There will be some who trusted in the things that they've done. They were baptized, they went to church, they they took the Lord's Supper, they did all these good deeds, and they will think that all these deeds have added up and they are safe when the reality is those works, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. They're nothing. Or there's other people who in their pride and pretension are so anti-religion that they develop their own little religious system. It sounds like this. I can't stand religious people. They're so hypocritical. And so therefore, I'm not ever going to even pretend like I'm religious because at least I'm being honest. And in so doing, they create their own religion. And this area of spiritual overconfidence is really a damning thing to have within the essence of your heart. It is to think somehow that you're okay And spiritual overconfidence is the target of Romans 3 and verse 10. Listen to what it says. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the issue here is that God tells us what we are like. And the problem is that we, as human beings, think way, way, way too high of ourselves, and we think we are far better than what we really are, and spiritual overconfidence is our first and greatest problem. The issue of spiritual overconfidence is not one thing that's bad among others, it's the worst thing amongst everything else, because it convinces you you don't have any need. It's a blinding effect so that you think, I don't need to listen to this sermon because I've got it nailed. Secondly, it is a great mercy for God to tell us what we are really like. It is a great mercy for the Bible to tell us that there is none righteous, no, not one. So if you read the Bible and you're like, what? God tells me I'm a sinner? Don't be offended. Instead, rejoice that God just told you what you really needed to know. It is mercy that God tells you that He is holy and you are not. It is mercy that God tells you that He resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You're living your life strutting. Adrian Rogers used to say, people strut their way all the way to a Christless eternity. And God comes along and He smacks you and He wakes you up instead of chafing against that and go, why did you smack me? Realize it's mercy that God says because you need to wake up to the reality of who you are and who I am. And therefore, when the flash of conviction comes, when you see yourself in the text, when you see the reality of who you are, thank God, that's mercy and it should freak you out when you can read the Scriptures and feel very little conviction. It's a sign of God's judgment when He lets you go. It's the easy path, the familiar path, the common path, the path of least resistance that's a sign of God's judgment. It's the hard path that's a sign of God's mercy. Third, listen, all of us have pasts. Don't let your past hold you, but listen, don't ever forget who you used to be. There's an important balance to maintain here, and the key is to see the past as the past, covered by the blood of Christ, 
And not be held back by it, but also, don't you ever forget that God rescued you. Don't you ever forget what kind of people you were apart from Him. The Apostle Paul never forgot the reality of who he used to be. Listen to this text. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Listen, you are the biggest sinner you know. You know why? Because you know you better than you know me. Mark Vrogup is the biggest sinner that Mark Vrogup knows because I know what I'm like. At least I know what I'm like more than I know what you are like. And Paul says, I am the foremost. You see, dealing with spiritual overconfidence begins by understanding the weight of your own sin and not reveling in it and glorying in it, but realizing that that past now informs the future by virtue of you knowing I was a sinner who needed grace. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what is your hope for endurance? It's this. Fourth, then rest your faith, not in your ability to be faithful, but on Jesus' ability to keep you faithful. Rest your faith, not on your ability to be faithful. So what's going to keep you faithful? Or what should Peter have said? Peter should have said, Lord, you know I'm a sinner, and you know that I I could desert you at any moment. Would you pray that I not desert you and not abandon you? Lord, help me. He should have said, instead of saying, if all of these fall away, he should have said, if anyone's going to blow it, it's going to be me. That's what he should have said. The key is to trust in the faithfulness of Christ to Him to keep you faithful, not in your own ability to keep yourself enduring all the way to the end. Listen to Philippians 3.12. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Hear it again. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That means that while you are grabbing for Christ, He's already laid hold of you. So that when you feel as though your fingertips are about to crumble and you're about to let go, it's then that you realize there's somebody else holding you. When our boys were little and I'd come home, there would just be this this bum rush for Dad. And they'd come run, Dad, Dad! And I'd get down low and I'd catch them in my arms. And we don't don't play that game anymore. That would hurt. (laughs) In fact, the other day I was standing in the in the pantry, he was guarding the food from them, and uh, and one of them said, move or I'll hurt you, and I said, okay, so I don't do that this game anymore, we do it with Savannah when I come home, but when they were little, they would run, and I would bend down like this, and I would grab a hold of them, and they would hug and squeeze me, and what they never realized until they tried to get out was that before they ever had me, I had them. My big arms were all the way around them, and so while they're holding me, I am holding them, and even if they tried to let go, there's no way because I've got them. And while they're laying hold of me, I'm grabbing a hold and laying hold of them. Here's how to say it. Keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. Keep trusting. Lord, I trust you. Help me. Lord, help me. Keep. Tr- I'm going to keep trusting you and keep me trusting all the way to the end. A healthy fear of your own sinful departing heart is healthy to have. Fifth. Be sure there are people in your life, intentionally invasive relationships, 
who can shatter your spiritual overconfidence. A friend of mine says this, that pride is like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it but you. And what you need is you need people in your life to say, dude, that stinks. That's not cool. And here's my question. Do you have anybody in your life who's gutsy enough to tell you when you're spiritually overconfident? My last church, I had a wonderful ministry assistant. And uh, one day we were talking about a letter one of our staff had written. And I, I said to her, Robin, I uh, spent the weekend looking at this letter. And I, and I moved from being having a critical eye to having a critical heart. And I, I made some kind of snide remark, slid the, the letter to her. And she looked at me and she said, Pastor Mark, just remember, not everyone has the gifts that you do. <clears throat> Thank you very much. And I needed to hear that. When you move from a critical eye to a critical heart, who calls you on it? Have anybody in your life who's got enough courageousness, enough gumption? Do you open yourself up for that? Or are you the last person that anybody's ever going to tell you? You know what? Not everyone is as good as you are at this, which means you're full of yourself. Why don't you wake up? Do you have anybody like that? If not, you are in a dangerous spot. Hebrews warns us that we need to encourage each other every day because of the hardness of the heart and the deceitfulness of sin. And then here's the final one, and here's the blessed hope. Listen, when you fail, take heart and run to Jesus. The greatest disciple on the planet Earth at the time was Peter. And even Peter blew it. And yet even Peter was restored. And this is why this story is in the New Testament. Imagine what it was like being Peter when this was written. And you're going to church to church and like, hey, aren't you the guy that denied Jesus? That'd be me. My guess is this probably, this probably informed his reputation for the rest of his lifetime. And yet in some respects, that's not all that bad. To remember what you could do and remember in big and small ways what Jesus is willing to do. You see, our hope doesn't come from assumptions about ourselves. It comes from our assurance of who he is. So if you blew it last night, if you blew it this morning, if you blew it over the weekend or you blew it three years ago, look, there is room at the cross for you to come back and say, Jesus, you know my heart, all of it. It's awful. It's wicked. You died for my sins. And I'm coming back saying, would you please clean me out for the one millionth time? And there is hope, and there is room, and there is grace. But there's not room for the person who says, even if all these wicked sinners fall away, I'll never fall away. There's no room for that person. It's only offered to those who would acknowledge that without Christ, there is no hope for them. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful so you hold on knowing that he is faithful our confidence comes from who he is not who we are or what we won't do i want you to read this aloud with me this is a prayer from valley of vision together ready When I am tempted to think highly of myself, grant me to see the wily power of my spiritual enemy. Help me to stand with wary eye on the watchtower of faith and to cling with determined grasp to my humble Lord. If I fall, let me hide myself in my Redeemer's righteousness 
And when I escape, may I ascribe all deliverance to thy grace. Keep me humble, meek, lowly. Father in heaven, I pray that you would accomplish that in our lives today. I pray that you would remind us of the weakness that all of us share in what it means to be human, fallen creatures. We need you, in some cases more than we know, in many cases more than we even realize. So help us today, Lord. I pray that you would have mercy and help us to see ourselves for who we are and help us to keep trusting the one who keeps us trusting. And thank you that it's by understanding these things and receiving Christ as our Savior that we come to the gospel in the first place. And so we ask this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have some folks up here for prayer afterwards. If you need to pray with somebody, they're here to bless you and encourage you, all right? God bless you. Be humble. Be lowly. Have a great day.